Hello, everyone. Today is June 3rd, 2020, and welcome back to the Change Healthcare Capital Connection podcast. I'm Deanne Kasim, and with me today is Angela Evat. Hello, Angela. Hi, Deanne. Today, we'll be talking about the latest healthcare industry updates from Capitol Hill and state houses across the nation, along with some discussion of the upcoming election season. We are also pleased to welcome our very special guest, Mary Greeley, president of the Healthcare Leadership Council, also known as HLC. HLC is unique among healthcare advocacy groups in that its members represent virtually every healthcare sector. The HLC membership is comprised of payers, providers, manufacturers, distributors, information technology companies, clinical laboratories, and more. What brings this diverse group of leaders together is a shared commitment to healthcare accessibility, affordability, quality, and innovation. And we should note that Change Healthcare is a member, and our CEO, Neil DiCrescenzo, is the current chair of the board of HLC. Mary, welcome. Oh, delighted to be with you, Deanne. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. And before we get started, can you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, what you and your team focus on every day, and maybe touch on your career journey? Uh, what brought you to HLC? Well, in my first life, Deanne, I was a speech pathologist, and I did that for five years. I enjoyed it thoroughly, but decided that I wanted a little more flexibility and decided to go to law school. I went to law school in Pittsburgh at Duquesne University. But during the summers, I wound up doing an internship on Capitol Hill, working for the Ways and Means Subcommittee on Health. And I had intended to be a tax lawyer, but I quickly became very interested in healthcare legislation and policy and really enjoyed it. So after I left Capitol Hill, I went to work for the Federation of American Hospitals and they represent the investor-owned hospitals, which is about 15% of the hospital industry. Did that for many years and then became the Washington Council for the American Hospital Association, which is the umbrella organization representing about 5,000 hospitals. Uh, was there for three years uh, before I joined the Healthcare Leadership Council. Excellent. Excellent. Well, certainly quite a story. And thank you for sharing it with us. Um, We look forward to getting your perspectives during our discussion today. I wanted to start out with an update from Capitol Hill with what's going on with the next COVID rescue package. Um, As we certainly know, to date, there have been three major packages that have provided funding of various forms for things related to the current pandemic situation. Um, Right now, we are looking at the real possibility of bipartisan agreement for the fourth rescue package, which has, there's been a large package called the HEROES Act, opening the economy, honoring heroes and sending money to Americans. Um, And so this has passed the House, although we hear from the Senate that there are some things with the bill that perhaps may not get through the Senate, but we've heard over the last week or so that the administration, as well as key Republican leaders in the Senate, uh, realize that there is a real real need for a fourth rescue package of some sort. Um, The HEROES Act is pretty comprehensive. Um, It includes a lot of funding for state, local, territorial, and tribal government. Um, It provides a lot for education, for highways, for transit agency relief. That's 
all under the big bucket of state and local support. Then there's a big bucket on healthcare that would provide $100 billion for public health and social services emergency fund for additional relief to hospitals and healthcare providers, um, increase in the federal medical assistant percentage or FMAP payments, which support state Medicaid programs, um, quite a lot in here. And then also there's the bucket of worker protections and support to individuals, um, including hazard pay to workers that were deemed essential during the pandemic and a second round of stimulus checks to certain Americans meeting a certain income threshold. Um, a lot in this package. Um, it would also provide additional support to the Small Business Administration's Paycheck Protection Program or PPP for small businesses. Um, so like I said, it's a big package. Um, um, Mary, one of the things I wanted to ask you, because obviously you um, have so much expertise in this area and are working every single day to see what's coming down um, from Capitol Hill and how that would affect the healthcare industry and HLC's members. What are your thoughts on this next package in terms of where things stand in congressional conversations right now and some of the priorities for the next package? Well, it's been interesting, Deanne, um, and as you noted, we're a, a multi-sector organization, and I should say that's one of the things that makes us a really unique trade association. So we're taking a very comprehensive look at the legislation that's already passed, uh, a lot that's happened on the regulatory side, and of course now pivoting to see what is going to be in this fourth package. I think it's good to step back for a moment and realize that uh, Congress has already authorized $3 trillion of spending, uh, and that is still getting out the door. The administrative agencies, HHS and others, are uh, implementing those payments to providers and others. Um, so what do we need to look for in this next package? Uh, you summarized very well the HEROES Act uh, in the House, which is, of course, controlled by the Democrats. And I think everyone really realizes uh, that that package is the ultimate wish list and that it is going to be pared down when it comes over to the Senate. I think one priority issue <clears throat> that um, Leader McConnell has made quite clear that over in the Senate, they will want to make sure that there is liability protection for employers as they reopen their businesses. And I think um, I, as a, a small employer, <clears throat> am very concerned. We are going to follow all the guidelines that are issued by CDC to make sure our employees are safe. <clears throat> but I think we all want the assurance that there will be a temporary safe harbor, that if you follow these guidelines, you've done all the right steps, um, that you should be somewhat immune for a period of time from, say, class action lawsuits. So that's one issue that I know is top of mind for a lot of people. But um, we also are focusing on what else do our members need? Uh, and what do patients and beneficiaries need as well? So we're going to focus on making sure that those that may be losing their health insurance coverage, their private health insurance coverage because of their loss of job, um, that we find some way to provide a subsidy. Again, a temporary subsidy, just trying to bridge the gap here. We could do that through COBRA subsidies, perhaps higher subsidies for those that use the exchanges that were authorized under the Affordable Care Act. 
um, perhaps we could have a special enrollment period so that those are now eligible, that would now be eligible to use the Affordable Care Act exchanges, would be able to access that private health insurance coverage. It's a big issue for our health system members. It's really a big issue for all of our members, but we want to make sure that people have access to health care and don't lose it because they've lost their jobs. Um, so that will be uh, another really high priority for us. We also want to make sure that those providers that have been uh, particularly hard hit continue to receive some financial support. I know a lot of money has gone out the door to try and help uh, hospitals and others, but I was struck in talking to a couple of my health system members. They've received 35 to $40 million in that first um, tranche of payments. That only covers about two weeks of their expenses. So it was a big help. They're glad that they got it, um, but they really haven't closed that financial gap yet. And a lot of that is for two reasons, really. One, additional expenses and the equipment, the PPE, various other things that they've had to do in treating COVID patients. But I think the bigger financial hit has been the loss of their revenue from elective procedures, which often represents about 80% of uh, health systems revenues. So as you can imagine, that's been quite a financial shock to them. So we wanna make sure that health systems um, receive that support, uh, particularly rural providers, they're really struggling. They don't have much of a margin to begin with. Uh, and those that are providing care to Medicaid patients as well as uninsured patients, um, those can be high cost populations that they're dealing with. And often that reimbursement is less than their cost. So we also want to make sure that we continue to strengthen the healthcare workforce and make sure that health professionals can be deployed to where they're needed. Uh, Deanne, you've probably heard me talk a lot in our various updates from HLC about the need to make sure that physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, all those health professionals that may be needed in these COVID-19 hotspots can get there. So we're saying if they're licensed to practice in one state, they should be able to practice in any state, again, during this pandemic period. So those are a couple of the issues that we'll be focusing on. And then of course, we'll wanna make sure that we're continuing to support uh, the necessary private investment and innovation to develop new vaccines, technologies, and therapies uh, for this pandemic. That's great. That's great. Mary, thanks so much for sharing that with us. It's definitely a comprehensive list, but I hope our listeners can appreciate from your description just how multifaceted um, the issues facing and the challenges facing the healthcare industry are right now. Um, so lots for legislators and policymakers to consider. So thank you for that. Um, I want to pivot real quick and go over some of the other things going on legislatively on Capitol Hill, uh, looking at what's going on with representatives to get an Upton in the House working on a bipartisan effort for 21st Century Cures 2.0, um, also a legislative um, piece of work that's very important to the membership of HLC as well as um, our business here at Change Healthcare and that of our of our customers really. 
So last year when this started, uh, the representatives put a working outline out there and asked for comments from the general public, industry stakeholders on what should be the next build on to this important bill. Of course, building on the first uh, 21st century cures legislative effort. And since then, we've seen uh, this take more of a pandemic response focus. So there's uh, six areas right now that they've tailored this, including in one of the sections, the first section actually, to improve pandemic surveillance and testing capabilities, um, commercializing antimicrobial resistance products, and really trying to to bolster the public health infrastructure. I invite our listeners, if they want to find out more, to visit Congresswoman DeGette's uh, page or, or Congressman Upton's page. Um, this is definitely a work in progress, and we shall see as we move forward this year and into next year where, where things really end up. Also related to pandemic, uh, one issue that we've covered here, um, this is now our third broadcast, and we've covered this pretty much in depth in the, the last two, was talking about privacy legislation. And uh, already we were kind of not making a lot of progress between House bills and Senate bills between Democrats and Republicans in terms of general privacy legislation, not just healthcare specific, but of course covering things outside of healthcare. And now we're seeing some pandemic pieces that are specifically talking about privacy and pandemics. Uh, we touched on this a little bit in last week's podcast with Arian Malik. The policy connection uh, wanted to follow up a little bit more about that. Um, generally, the three pieces that we're looking at that came out more or less in response to what Apple and Google are doing with Bluetooth enabled contact tracing types of programs that would enable a user to be notified if they came in contact, again, using Bluetooth technology with someone who had tested positive for COVID. Um, the three major pieces that we're tracking out of the Senate are the COVID-19 Consumer Data Protection Act um, that is sponsored by Senator Wicker, the Public Health Emergency Private Act, um, sponsored by Senators Blumenthal and Warner. And then late this week, we had another bill, um, the Exposure Notification Privacy Act from Senators Cassidy and Cantwell. Um, all of these are trying to address the issues in terms of what kind of data is used in contact tracing through technology tools, um, what kind of consent is required, really how all of these guardrails will work. Um, and again, we seem to be stumbling on two major bits here, which is Republicans tend to want a bill for privacy, regardless of it's pandemic specific or not, that would preempt state law. And Democrats are very much opposed to that. Um, Democrats want bills that include a private right of action, and Republicans say that's a non-starter for them. Um, so unfortunately, I don't have any big predictions that these are really going to move right now. Um, but again, that's something that continues to be on our radar. So next steps, what's next for Congress? Um, Mary, since you track this so closely, as well as all the team members at HLC, I wanted to ask you for your take on next steps that Congress is working through as we progress through the summer months to con the convention month of August and into the fall. Well, I would say first, Deanne, I don't think they're going to be here very much. A uh, couple of drivers for that. Many lawmakers are nervous about being back in Washington, D.C. In a, in a hot spot. And as we've seen, uh, the Democrats in the House have voted to go to uh, virtual hearings as well as virtual voting. Um, very 
unusual uh, to do that remotely. And that is being contested by the Republicans in the courts. So it's hard to say what they will get to in the limited time that they will be here. They, I believe, will get to this fourth package. I think there's enough that remains to be done that the Republicans in the Senate realized that uh, they want to get that liability protection that I spoke about, but there are also some things that they uh, want to do for small employers and others um, to make sure they can uh, financially and economically uh, survive this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, you touch on those privacy issues, that legislation. I think just listening to your description of it uh, and the fact that there is probably a not of a lot of bipartisanship on that. There's some lines that are being drawn here. And it's hard for me to see them really tackling an issue that complex and, and getting it done. Um, and they also have some non-healthcare issues that they need to address, like the defense authorization bill. Uh, people probably have heard a lot about this FISA surveillance legislation that keeps bouncing back and forth between the House and Senate. So there are some other things that they need to do. Uh, but I think that the focus for us short term really is going to be on that uh, fourth COVID-related package. Yes, well, we can certainly hold out hope that we uh, do get some of that necessary relief that the industry uh, so desperately needs. So thank you for that, Mary. Um, Switching topics again, I want to focus on the states, so I'm going to turn that over to our state expat, uh, expert, Angela. Thanks, Deanne. Um, yeah, so there's uh, quite a number of things going on at the state level. In particular, over the last uh, several weeks, we have been seeing uh, states re reopening. Um, many are taking sort of a phased approach, as many of our listeners probably have experienced in their own community, um, where these phased approaches are contingent on meeting certain benchmarks around testing, um, declines in COVID positive test results, and making sure that um, the communities have uh, sufficient bed capacity. Um, we're also seeing regional considerations as states reopen allowing for certain counties or even jur local jurisdictions to sort of set their own reopening timeframes. Um, some states are also issu issuing reopening guidance for certain industries, um, like restaurants and retail and even healthcare facilities as they are resuming non-essential sur surgeries and procedures. Um, what's... Uh, Somewhat interesting, but not surprising, that similar to the way states have shut down, um, there isn't a lot of consistency or standards that states are taking when it comes to reopening. So um, there is variation across counties, across uh, states that can be confusing uh, to not only citizens, but uh, to businesses that are trying to reopen. Um, what we're also seeing in the reopening um, and touched on a little bit by Mary um, at the federal level is considerations around limited or liability protections. We've seen states uh, look at providing limited liability protections more focusedly on healthcare providers as they treat um, COVID patients are responding to the pandemic, um, but some states are also looking at business liability protections as they reopen and bring in customers and bringing in employees 
Uh, we're, we saw laws uh, enacted in Utah and Alabama recently, and there are at least five other states that have introduced limited business liability protections. Um, so as states are reopening um, and are considering their reopening strategies, they're also turning to the economic health of these states. Um, so to touch just briefly on state budgets, um, most states' uh, budgets begin uh, in, uh, for their fiscal year 2021 and on July 1st. Um, and most states have finalized their, their 2021 budgets. But as you can imagine, COVID-19 um, has had a significant impact on state budgets and will continue uh, for months and months. Um, what's interesting is that, uh, and maybe our listeners might not know, that most states have uh, reserves or red, rainy day funds um, that they reserve for economic downfalls or, or um, emergencies such as the one that we're going through now. And most states hit record highs for these reserves during fiscal year 19. Um, on average, states had about 28 days of reserves um, for uh, which is collectively 79 or $75 billion, which is better than they had um, just before the recession, which was only 17 days. Um, however, many states believe that this is not enough to fill the budget gaps that are being caused by the, um, by the pandemic and the economic impacts that are to come. So for example, what we're seeing in California, there is, um, they had $60 million rainy day fund and are projecting a $54 billion deficit for the year. Um, so that's why they're looking at, like many states are looking at contemplating budget cuts um, and typically you're focusing on those two large budget items in states and that's schools and healthcare. Um, so while we probably will see an uptick in those who might need um, publicly funded healthcare like Medicaid at the state level, um, we might see some cuts happening um, within, within states. Um, we briefly talked about earlier the, the rescue package and the federal rescue package package did provide $150 billion to states and local governments, um, and governors are actually asking for uh, more so that they can uh, address some of those budget sh shortfalls. Um, but it's yet to be determined if the next rescue package will include additional funding for state and local governments. Um, in terms of states' approaches to uh, the pandemic, even as they reopening, or as they're reopening, states are still looking at ways to ensure they have uh, an appropriate workforce. Um, and Mary, you briefly touched on this in terms of uh, licensure, and we're seeing that uh, states are amending or removing some regulatory requirements to ensure healthcare workforce. And we talked briefly about this on our last podcast, where uh, states are um, allowing for emergency or presumptive licensure for out-of-state providers. And this is not only to allow for, for providers to come into their state to provide that, that service, but also to practice over state lines for telehealth. Um, and they're also looking at expedited licensure for inactive or retired providers to beef up that, that um, workforce. And the states are also looking at telehealth coverage expansion. So we've seen several states expand coverage for telehealth by the service um, 
different types of uh, services through telehealth or the locations or the different provider types they've expanded. Um, and even emergency reimbursement parity to allow for that payment to look the same as an in-person service. Um, several states have even eliminated pre-existing relationship requirements for telehealth. Um, but I wanted to ask uh, you, Mary, in terms of your views around state licensure, you mentioned that we're gonna make sure that um, licensure flexibility is available to make sure that providers can be licensed in particular states where they're, they're needed. Um, but tell me a little bit more about uh, what we're seeing from, uh, from HLC as it relates to state licensure. Well, this was a top priority issue uh, for us. One of our members is AMN and they are a nurse staffing company. They had thousands of nurses ready to deploy to the hotspot areas for COVID-19 and yet we're running into the state licensure barriers. We naively thought, uh, and I must say HHS did as well, that the president could issue an executive order and allow that kind of waiver. HHS drafted a regulation. We worked with them on that regulation. Uh, it landed at OMB, Office of Management and Budget, where it was declared unconstitutional. And that is when we learned that we had to rely on each governor from each state in their executive order to provide that waiver of licensure. Now, to his credit, Secretary Azar laid it out very clearly. Once he found out that he couldn't actually issue that regulation, he gave a lot of guidance to the governors as to how they uh, could and should do it. And that was a real challenge because many governors had gone ahead and drafted something, um, but oftentimes it would just cover uh, allowing retired workers to come into the workforce and, and not the current, currently licensed and currently working. So once we did begin working with the states, they, they reacted quickly. Um, we worked closely with New York, District of Columbia, and others. And so when their governors issued executive orders, the problem is that they were time limited. And so many of them were expiring at the end of March. So we then had to, again, contact all those people and make sure that as they extended their stay-at-home orders and as they were still responding, uh, to the crisis that they were including this waiver of licensure requirement. Of course, we would like to see uh, a single federal license. Uh, right now, I think the VA is able to do that, and we just think we should have that flexibility uh, to allow health professionals that are qualified. Uh, a lot of this is done through the state compacts, and many states mm -hmm. are covered with that, but certainly not 100%. Uh, and this really is just an absolutely critical issue and something that we'll be looking at closely in the long term to see if we can come up with a better policy in this area. Yeah, it seems like that um, that issue will get a bit more attention uh, given the circumstances. Um, I know that there are several states um, that have joined the compact, but like you said, not, not all of them. Um, Let's turn a little bit to telehealth and the flexibilities that we're seeing uh, in states. Um, what uh, has HLC seen in terms of states relaxing these requirements to provide telehealth flexibility? Um, and do we think that 
um, most of those will, will last past the emergency. Um, what are you hearing? Well, telehealth is here to stay. I think that is one thing that is going to come out of this pandemic. And I've heard it referred to as there is no way we're going to get this genie back in the bottle or toothpaste back in the tube, uh, whatever, however you want to describe it. Um, for example, um, our health system members have seen a tenfold increase, um, some even greater than that, in the number of telehealth visits that they're doing with their patients. Um, states have taken action, but what I have found most interesting about this is that the commercial health insurers uh, have really stepped in as well. And I think oftentimes um, they would rather get ahead of the state and not require legislation to do it or changes in you know, regulations that might not be needed uh, requiring the commercial plans to do it. They're stepping up and doing it. They're very supportive of it. And um, our provider members are extraordinarily supportive of it. I've seen a real sea change in the, the attitude and acceptance towards telehealth. And I think it is going to come out more expansive and much more stronger uh, as a result of this. One of my uh, key examples of this is Dr. Burgess from Texas, who is the ranking member on the Energy and Commerce uh, Subcommittee in Congress. And he, I saw him on a particular webcast he said, I have not been a big supporter of telehealth. He said, I have completely changed my mind. I have embraced it. Uh, it is here and we have to do everything we can to support it. Because we've been able to see better access. Uh, it's being done more efficiently. And I think a component that we really should be focusing on is the behavioral health area, that this has broadened access tremendously at a time where it was really needed. So I think a lot of good is going to come out of this. I think the states will be on board with it. I think what will have to be negotiated, of course, is making sure that it's used appropriately. Uh, and then we'll have discussions about the, the reimbursement. But I know that uh, two of our members, Aetna, uh, plans to keep doing this and expanding it. And also Blue Cross Shield of Tennessee also made it clear that they will continue to provide uh, telehealth services and reimbursement for it. Um, and in a conversation with Secretary Azar, he also underscored, again, it's here to stay. We should have expanded it before this. And we'd been pushing for Medicare to expand uh, telehealth services and reimbursement for it. So he really has asked us and others, uh, tell us what's working well and all the waivers that we've done, telehealth being an important one, which of these things should we make permanent? And we certainly will be supporting uh, making that waiver and change in regulation, uh, both at the federal and state level, permanent. Yeah, it's definitely been a, um, a, a um, impetus in terms of telehealth in, in the state level as well as the federal. Um, we're seeing changes uh, within Medicare uh, as well as in Medicaid. Um, and we'll see sort of how they align uh, in terms of uh, requirements. You mentioned a good point in terms of the next sort of discussion around uh, appropriate use of, of telehealth. Um, you know, if, if some of these requirements are sort of relaxed, um, should we see states make considerations to avoid fraud, abuse, and a waste. I, I think that was sort of 
the hesitation prior to the pandemic that telehealth would be overused, it would be fraudulent. Um, but where do you think the conversation is going and what are you, do you think are some of the policy um, levers that folks will think about in terms of um, ensuring um, that telehealth is used uh, appropriately? Well, I think the best way to determine that is by measuring the outcomes. And, and actually, I just had the conversation with an Aetna executive uh, yesterday. And what they are seeing as they expand the use of telehealth is they're getting better outcomes, better population health, and um, more appropriate tests being ordered, perhaps not over-ordering tests. Their view is that this really is going to result in better outcomes and probably more efficiency. And they're supportive of what I would call parity payments. Um, as long as you're doing the right care for the right patient, uh, it shouldn't matter what the, the physical location is. So I would really look to the commercial health plans, private health plans leading the way on this. And believe me, as you well know, uh, they are always on the lookout for fraud abuse as well. So it will require having appropriate quality measures in place and I think working with the, the private sector on what would be uh, most appropriate here. Absolutely. Um, I think what's most interesting about the whole uh, telehealth surgence is that we're getting um, policymakers comfortable, but also patients mm -hmm. comfortable where they're not able to necessarily go or aren't willing to take the risk to, to see their provider and are offered that service um, and are, are taking that up and get it, getting their, their feet wet um, to understand how, how easy it is potentially and um, how it could potentially be moved, used moving forward. Well, I, I think this has been a real precipitating event um, because it required using telehealth if you needed to see a physician. The physicians just weren't open, as it were, uh, for business. And I think people now realize, you know, it's not so bad not sitting in that waiting room waiting for your appointment, um, that you can do this much more efficiently in terms of the time that you're spending uh, and again, for a whole host of things, you can get the, the same care you were getting with that in-person visit. I have uh, one of our employees is going through cancer treatment right now, and um, it's, it's worked extraordinarily well for her when she has those consultations with the physicians rather than having to go uh, to the physician's office. Um, so we've got great examples of how it can work well for the patient and, and the providers are really embracing it as well. Yep, makes sense. Um, well, th thanks for, for all those insights in terms of the state level. Um, we'll definitely be looking forward to see what's on the horizon for states. Um, I'll turn it back to you, Deanne. Great, thanks, Angela. Thanks, Mary, that was really informative. Appreciate it. Um, again, switching topics um, one more time. I want to look at some of the 
work that HLC's preparedness, disaster preparedness task force is doing and get some thoughts on um, what we think the election discussions uh, will be shaping up to be on healthcare. So Mary, I know um, we started this task force uh, effort on disaster preparedness at HLC with some of the CEOs really kind of picking up the ball on this uh, the end of last year. Um, I know sometimes we wish we had started, we started it sooner, but the, the key point I think is we started it. Um, can you give our listeners um, an overview of the task force and what some of the um, things, what, what some of the goals are for this group? Well, thank you, Deanne. And you may remember this uh, was initiated after we had a meeting with uh, Dr. Cadillac, who is the head of ASPR. And he addressed our Patient Safety and Quality Task Force, um, talking about how unprepared the country was for a natural or a pandemic disaster, and that the government really needed to build a much stronger partnership with the private sector in a much more coordinated way. Coordinated way. He could look around our table and point to different healthcare CEOs that he had worked with uh, Merck on an Ebola vaccine, uh, some of the distributors and as far as getting uh, supplies to healthcare entities after Katrina. But he said we really need some kind of structure where the public sector is less siloed and the private sector is less siloed and we're really all on the same page. Um, of course, wish we had started this sooner. I have to say it was just heartbreaking to realize that we'd begun this project, but we certainly were far from being finished with it. Um, I have to commend uh, your chairman, Neil DiCrescenzo, uh, and his leadership on this. He has uh, gotten Deloitte to agree to work with us uh, on this, focusing on what leadership is needed um, in preparing and responding to a crisis, that's going to be a very important component uh, because I think we're all seeing what a role leadership plays when we're trying to collaborate and innovate and uh, work with the government on something like this. And what a strong, extraordinarily strong role the private sector has played. Um, I point to the whole lab testing uh, issue and how the, the lab companies have really stepped in to help the government make sure that people are getting those rapid tests um, and able to use them quickly. And that has been a sea change uh, in what we've seen. The other component to this will be working with former FDA Commissioner Mark McClellan, who's now at the Duke Margolis Health Policy Center. Uh, and he is really going to help us work with our multi-sector membership on various topics that really will take a look at what worked. There are some things that worked well, uh, what didn't work well, and what are the policy and steps we need to take uh, to make sure that we are not caught flat-footed um, the way we were this time, that we have a much better idea of how we can respond more quickly um, and how we can bring the, the innovation that we've seen in the private sector to help uh, solve some of these issues. And what can we request of the government in terms of them changing some of the policies that are in place? Now, having said that, I have to commend uh, HHS, uh, the other FEMA, Homeland Security, all the different agencies involved in this, that when things were brought to their attention, when they realized what policies needed to be changed, they acted more quickly than I have ever seen any government entity respond. 
um, Congress passed legislation, they implemented it within a week. Normally that would take at least six months to a year. So I, I do want to applaud them for the, the hard work and the good work that they did do. But even they realize we've got to do a better job the next time. And yeah, I, I uh, so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say I completely mm -hmm. agree and I am excited to see what the next steps are and the work that this this task force is doing. Um, this is such a valuable effort um, so that as we move forward, we do have that public-private effort towards, towards a playbook, if you will, for the next time something occurs. Well, and I think the other interesting thing, Deanne, has been watching the collaboration um, across the different sectors within the healthcare industry. I look at what happened with the, the whole supply chain and having the distributors and the manufacturers, uh, the group purchasing organizations all working together to figure out, all right, what, what supplies do we have and where they needed right away and working together on that allocation rather than waiting for, say, a government entity to step in and say where things should be allocated, um, because sometimes they don't have the most current information. Uh, but these entities were willing to share their proprietary information, kind of did it through a neutral body. Um, but they came together quickly and uh, responded really fast. So we hope that that will be a, a great lesson learned and something that we can really institutionalize going forward. Great. Yeah, I, this is just such important work. Um, thank you for that. Thank you for all the details, um, you know, to be continued <laughs> as the task force continues yes. their work. Um, I want to ask you to go perhaps a little bit out on a, a limb, not too far, but just to really think about, you know, healthcare was the issue coming into this election year. And now in a post-COVID era, it, I, I feel like it's just even so much more important. Um, where do you see the conversations going now that we have our, you know, presumptive Democratic nominee and Joe Biden and, um, you know, it remains to be seen who he picks as a running mate. And of course, you know, the incumbent President Trump, um, you know, where do you see some of the conversation going on health care issues as we go towards November? Well, I think as always, um, healthcare does tend to be a, a hot button issue. And it is one of the few things, I mean, if you think about it, it is one of the few issues that affects every single person in a very personal way. Uh, and believe me, I find this when I go to receptions or when I'm out racing on my sailboat, you know, if you bring up the topic of healthcare, you get very strong opinions from people. So it will be an issue uh, during this election. Now, we have, you know, our presumptive Democratic candidate, um, former Vice President Joe Biden, who did not embrace uh, a Medicare for all approach or a single payer approach. And the work that we've been doing, uh, we have found that consistently polls show that Americans don't want to tear down the current system. Um, the vast majority of people are receiving their health, private health insurance coverage from their employer. Uh, they'd like to see some improvements to it, but they're not interested in giving that up and having the, the government run the entire system. But they clearly want some improvements made. And so I think as a result of the pandemic, um, 
people are probably going to feel even more strongly about that as well. A, a great concern, of course, is the loss of insurance as a result of losing that job because it is employer-based insurance. And the question is, will that increase the support for Medicare for All uh, system? I personally think it will still be give me help to purchase the health insurance that I want. Um, and I'd like to have a choice of private health plans in order to do that. And that's why we're strongly supporting having those COBRA subsidies uh, to help people maintain the coverage that they might already have um, while they're waiting to be rehired or while they're looking for another job. Now, one thing that uh, Vice President Biden does support is uh, perhaps having a public option as one of the planned choices on the exchanges or possibly a Medicare buy-in. Um, we're not supportive of that because really it is a, a slow path towards a Medicare for all approach because those plans would be really playing on an uneven uh, playing field with the private plans. Uh, they would be able to price lower. They would have uh, lower overhead. So that is going to be focus of much debate in Congress, I would predict, and it will be much discussed during the election uh, or during the campaign. It's pretty unclear as to who um, Vice President Biden will select as his running mate. Uh, it will be a woman, but it is not clear, and I think he's postponed that decision probably until late July. So sort of stay tuned to see where things go with that. Um, but and then, you know, the Republican side, obviously it will be uh, President Trump that will be campaigning. I think, you know, the situation we're in right now with the social unrest uh, is creating a very difficult environment, uh, not only for the president, but I think also for uh, the Republicans in the House and Senate. The House currently is controlled by the Democrats. I think the Republicans were hoping to pick up a significant number of seats. And certainly over in the Senate, um, Mitch McConnell wants to keep his majority. The challenge he has over in the Senate is uh, really the Democrats maybe have one seat that's kind of up for contention, whereas the Republicans have many seats where uh, it is a toss-up and it's not clear um, whether they will be able to maintain their majority. So it could be a very interesting time uh, if we wind up with uh, both houses of Congress as well as the White House under a democratic uh, control. This is a situation we had when President Obama was elected and that is when we got the Affordable Care Act. So that's a long way of saying that the crystal ball is a bit murky right now, um, but I think people will be looking to see who will be a good leader uh, as we deal with these very various crises. And uh, I think that story um, it still remains to be told as to how people are going to view uh, what was accomplished in responding to the pandemic. Um, and again, the, the social unrest that we're having right now, how are we going to come out of this and how is the electorate going to feel about it? Uh, there's still you know, many months before the election, so it's rather unsettled at this point. Agreed. I completely agree. And I think the key word there is unsettled for sure. Yeah. Um, so as you, um, as you pointed out, the story is yet to be told. So more to come. 
Right. Well, and I probably should have mentioned the economy. I, you know, one, we were so fortunate the economy was doing as well as it was when this pandemic hit. I, I can't imagine if we had already been in a recession, how bad it would be. Uh, and the economy will play a significant role as well, seeing how we come out of this. So I, I don't want to lose sight of that factor. It's something that matters to many people because just like healthcare, how you're doing economically can be a, a very personal issue and holds a lot of sway in terms of elections. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. In fact, that old cliche, are you better off now than four years ago? Uh, I, I can't think mm -hmm. of it applying any more than it does today. Well, Mary, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your important insights and updates, uh, particularly around HLC's valuable work and your insights into this an important election year. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. And uh, as always, a special shout out to all of our frontline healthcare workers, first responders, everyone doing their part to keep us stocked and well. Thank you. For our listeners, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to important resources and contact information related to today's discussion. And stay tuned to the Change Healthcare Policy podcast for more shows covering the policy topics you care about. And check out some of our other shows covering healthcare and health IT topics that you care about. I'm Deanne Kasim, and thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day and stay well. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare podcast. For more information on this and other healthcare IT topics, please visit changehealthcare.com. Don't forget to check the show notes for useful links to related resources and our contact information. Thanks for listening and have a great day.